From Washington, D.C., this is the Korean American Perspectives, a new podcast presented to you by the Council of Korean Americans. Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast, where we explore the triumphs and challenges of the Korean American experience and examine different sides of complex issues that shape our community. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this episode. This is Abraham Kim, your host of the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Today, I am fortunate to have as my guest, David Chun, CEO and founder of Equilar, a top industry leader providing important data for board and executive recruitment for major corporations around the world. With Equilar's unique role as a principal data provider for global companies to find top executive talent, David has a vast understanding of trends in senior leadership within numerous different sectors. If you are an Asian American professional with aspirations for the C-suite or perhaps a public boardroom, today's podcast has a lot of important nuggets for you. In today's interview with David, we talk about first, the efforts to increase C-suite and board diversity that's taking place across the country and what it all means for Asian American leaders. Secondly, we also discuss what are the important factors that many Asian Americans often overlook but critically need to nurture in order to reach executive leadership positions. Thirdly, with the current COVID-19 crisis, we address leadership in times of uncertainty. David reveals what important lessons he learned when he started Equilar during the last global economic downturn. And then finally, I got him to share the one book that he believes that all CEOs or people who aspire to be CEO must read. We hope you enjoy this honest and engaging conversation with David Chun about his life, his company, and how Asian American professionals can prepare to reach the highest levels of private sector leadership. Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives. We have David Chun in the house, and we are so happy to have David, my friend from San Francisco, the CEO of Equilar. Welcome, David. Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast series. I'm so excited because we've been been following your career and also the important work you're doing on board diversity and, and trying to input diversity in the C-suite. And I love to get into that part of our conversation today. But before we do, why don't we start from the beginning? I understand you were born in Korea and you immigrated to the United States at a young age. Could you share a little bit with us about your family's immigration story? Yeah, happy to do that. And before I talk about myself, I, I also want to thank you for your leadership You've been a breath of fresh air and all the innovative things that you've been doing for CK. So I wanted to take a moment to thank you for that. But yeah, so our family had a kind of a unique story. Our ticket out of Korea was my dad's was able to get a scholarship to get his MBA at Fairleigh Dickinson University in New Jersey. So it's a you know small college there, but that was uh, our way of getting out. And uh, this was in 67, 68. So I was... Uh, all of seven months old when I uh, got on a plane to, uh, to JFK with my mom. My dad came first. So we grew up in New Jersey. So Fairleigh Dickinson at the time had a campus in Rutherford. 
And for those familiar with New Jersey geography, I mean, it was in the shadows of you know MetLife Stadium, Giant Stadium there in the Meadowlands. And yes, yeah, so my dad was able to get sponsored to get his MBA. It was a it's kind of a, a random act of kindness where he helped an FDU professor that was studying in Korea. I don't know, sorry, teaching in Korea, like in a, a rotation program back in, in the 60s. And my dad helped him and his wife out. And the wife remembered that and somehow was able to say, hey, we should sponsor him. And you know, my, my dad's family came, you know, he grew up in a, down in Gwangju, on in Cholado, over by the sea, very, very rural, poor area of Korea. And so we were very fortunate, as, you, as we all know, back in the 60s, Korea was not you know, the robust economy it is today. So any opportunity to be able to come to the States, and my dad was able to, to come here, and that's what brought us to uh, the States in the 60s. After growing up in New Jersey, you decided to study engineering at UVA. Why did you choose UVA as your college? Yeah, so when I graduated from high school in 1985, you know, at the time, there was an article that I read in the New York Times right before having to select school. And the three hottest schools that in, in the early 80s there were Stanford, Brown, and UVA. I had a chance to visit UVA, you know, for those who've had a chance to visit the campus, it's a beautiful campus. And the other reason I picked UVA was that Quite honestly, I didn't know what I wanted to do coming out of high school and you know, going to a place like UVA, having different schools, you had some flexibility. And I, I'm probably one of the few individuals that actually starts off as liberal arts and then transferred actually into the engineering school as opposed to the other way around. Because candidly, mm-hmm. coming out of high school, I go start a college, you know, I was never a big writer. So all the stuff you'd have to do in a liberal arts program certainly didn't appeal to me. And I said, well, you know, it's pretty good at math. I said, hey, why don't I just go do engineering and you know, figure it out later. So you left UVA and mm-hmm. you went and you had this journey of, you went to Bain as a consultant, then you went to uh, Keenan Systems, which is a software company. Walk me through that career pathway. Why did you choose those companies? And, and then you eventually ended up in an MBA program at Wharton. Yeah, so coming out of school, so this is 1989, the economy was still okay at that point, hadn't, hadn't fallen apart. And, you know, candidly, I was fortunate enough to get a job at Bain. And I was, you know, hadn't known much about it. It was one of the last companies I interviewed with. And then, you know, once you get to meet people, they're like, wow, these are really smart people. You know, I had a great experience, made a lot of good friends coming out there. Actually, you know, Dave Lynn and I, we still see each other a couple of times a year. Having worked at Bain together, and it, it was a, it was a good experience. I learned a lot. However, about a year after I joined, you know, Bain almost went out, out of business, and they had a massive layoff. And you know, of the group that I started with, you know, over half of us got laid off after the first year. So that was, uh, you know, was a very valuable lesson, right? You never take anything for granted. It was very humbling, right? You're a year out of school, you get laid off. Year ago, you know, had all these offers for all these different jobs. Now, you know, had to had to file for unemployment. Not unlike what we're going through right now. Right now is a hell of a lot worse. But it was a very challenging period personally. But thankfully, you know, having that Bain experience, there were definitely a couple opportunities I was able to to get. Decided to go to Keenan Systems because it was a you know software company. It was in Boston. Figured, okay, I got my engineering degree. Let me you know put that to use for a bit. Knew, I knew at some point I'd go back to business school. And so that was, you know, a good, good experience for a year, year and a half, about a year and a half or so. 
went to Wharton, uh, got my MBA. And after having done consulting, I think I realized that was not what I wanted to do long term. And I felt like, okay, you know, let's go give Wall Street a try, give it a shot. And I was fortunate enough to get a summer internship at, at DLJ and then join the Donaldson Lincoln and Gen Red, and then join them full time after business school. And then you shifted to an entrepreneur endeavor and you decided to establish Equilar as an entrepreneur. How did that idea come about? And did you do this by yourself or did you have partners with you? Yeah. So in 1997, right after uh, Netscape had gone public, right, this is the dot-com era. So DLJ at the time wanted to open an office in Menlo Park on Sand Hill Road in the venture capital community. They had asked me to move out with a woman who now runs Oracle, Safra Katz, to open up the Menlo Park office. And initially, you know, my wife and I, we both grew up in, New, in the New York area. I grew up in New Jersey. She grew up in, in Queens, you know, at Stuyvesant High School. You know, we're your we're typical bridge and tunnel couple. And uh, <laughs> never thought we would go west. You know, everybody in California, they're crazy. You know, there's earthquakes, there's fires, which is true, which are true. But, you know, it's, as you know, it's a, it's a beautiful place to live. And so they said, hey, go out there for a year. If you don't like it, uh, we'll move you back. And so Lillian and I had just gotten married. And mm-hmm. let's, let's give it a shot and let's see how it plays out. So, so we moved out here in 97, immediately fell in love with living out here. And you know, 23 years later, was, we're still here, raised our family out here, love every moment of, of being out here. So, so I'm here in Silicon Valley in 97, 98 working with a lot of startups, meeting, you know, VC startups and whatnot, getting pretty into the ecosystem here. You know, right, we just got married. We just had our first child. Isabel was born in 98. And I knew I was not going to be an investment banker for my entire career. And I said, okay, what are, what are our options? I said, well, you know something, uh, let me, you know, give this entrepreneurial thing a shot. Having watched a lot of, you know, having interacted and watched and gotten to know a bunch of entrepreneurs, I said, well, it can't be that hard. So took the plunge in 2000. That's how, how things got started. So how we got into it, I spent a lot of time as an investment banker going through SEC filings. And what it occurred to me after doing that for five, six years is that there's just a wealth of information that's out there that people don't even realize. And I said, hey, there's got to be an opportunity to, to mine this data and what ended up happening in 98, the SEC launched the Edgar system. And so right now, as we all know, you know getting a 10K or an annual report for is pretty easy. You go to the SEC's website, you can download that. But when I first got into the business in, in 93, 94, Edgar didn't exist. The, the web wasn't around. So now that this data was much more readily accessible, I said, hey, there's got to be an opportunity to monetize this, build a business around it. And that's what led me to go off and start Equilor in 2000. So was the initial focus on executive pay or were there, was it just general information about individual companies that came out of the Edgar system? Yeah, yeah. So the original idea, and you know, I can laugh about this now, but it wasn't funny when we were doing it, was to track IPO data. So keep in mind, I left DLJ in February, March of 2000. So this is literally at the peak of the dot-com bubble, right? This is as as frothy as it could get. Then the market just fell apart in April, right? So our original plan when we left was to track IPO data. So companies that have gone public and just build a, a deep, rich database around IPOs. 
And what ended up happening was, is we built a great product, but the market moved away from us. And so the, the feedback from everybody was like, well, hey, when we do IPOs, we'll, we'll talk to you. But then, you know, as we all recall, the IPO market shut down for about two years. But one of the things we tracked out of, out of IPO filings was the compensation data. When we started talking to some people about compensation data, everybody's eyes lit up. And initially, I was just like, you know, hey, it's, uh, I understand you may be interested in that stuff, but I don't know anything about you know, executive compensation. This is not really what we signed up for. So fast forward, we're now in 2001. 9-11 hits. I happened to be in New York City and all that was going on. And at that point, I realized we were either going to shut down the company at that point, or there's this interest around this compensation data. Either we go deep on that or we go home. And so I had, had a lot of soul searching, a lot of navel gazing at that point and said, you know something? What the hell at this point? You know something? I'm not an HR guy. I'm, not, I'm an investment banker. But if this is what the market wants, let's go out and build this. And let's see what happens. So we quickly pivoted at that point, got our product up by the end of 2001. We just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And that's when the whole Enron scandal blew up. That's when Arthur Anderson you know, candidly went under. And then you had a bunch of other corporate scandals come out in 2002, like Tyco, WorldCom, Adelphia. And so that's really where the modern corporate governance era started. And we just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And our big break in 2002 was we got a call from a reporter at Reuters. Tim McLaughlin, distinctly remember the call. He's like, hey, I heard you have compensation data. I'm like, yeah, sure. Yeah, well, what do you, what do you need? He's like, I need to find out what, you know, what did Mark Schwartz, the CFO of Tyco, make last year you know, when he was CEO in 2001? So we you know, pulled the data, emailed it over to him, and he, I'm going to say the number is about $51 million. And so then the next day, you know, across the wire... According to Equilar, an executive data provider, Mark Schwartz made $51 million as the CFO of Tyco last year. It's like, wow, that, that was pretty amazing. So that, that kind of helped, for lack of a better term, launch us into this whole area, this space, and helped us establish a bit of credibility there. So this was your first entrepreneurial endeavor, wasn't it? First and most likely only. <laughs> So you bring up an interesting point. You started your company during a very turbulent time in the economy and especially in the you know, IT world. I'm sure reflecting back, especially where we are today, you probably have some, perhaps some advice for entrepreneurs who are kind of are living through the current era of what you were going through during those early 2000 years. Are there any words of wisdom you would pass on? Yeah, I mean... Everybody, as, as you can imagine, many people are freaking out right now. I hate to say this, but rightfully so, because this downturn we're going through right now, nobody has seen anything like this before, right? 17 million people filing for unemployment over the last three weeks. First and foremost is you got to get your cost structure in line. got to rationalize it and just you know, get it down to the bare, bare bones. As we all know, the, the curve will flatten at some point. The key here is to be, you know, make sure the lights are on when that, when that opportunity opens up. And so, you know, having access to liquidity, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, what's killing everybody with coronavirus is, the, you know, oxygen getting to the lungs, right? 
And that's for businesses is cash, you know, having enough liquidity to, you know, to keep the lights on. So without question, this is where you need wartime CEOs to quickly assess what you need to keep the business afloat and both from a liquidity standpoint and then also just looking at your cost structure and make sure we can get to the other side. Your business is essentially information, the selling of information. And in this era of where information is so prevalent, how do you make a business out of information? It seems like I would imagine, especially something like executive compensation, something like that is is really, it's episodic, right? It's not like regular financial data that's coming out that people are looking for on a constant basis. What's the secret sauce there in terms of being able to sell this important source of data, which is really needed at a more episodic you know, periods of time? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Abe. I mean, it is the, the data business, right? There's so many free resources out there that you have to have a high quality product that's differentiated that you know, people are willing to pay for. Our data sources on the compensation side, uh, there are two primary sources. One is, as I, as I mentioned, we're, we're mining SEC filings. We're going into the annual reports, the 10Ks, extract that information. We're also, throughout the year, compensation data becomes available through Form 4 filings, AK filings, starting into the weeds of this. But the point I'm trying to make is that they're what they call real-time information available around comp. The other major source of data, though, for us is that we do a proprietary survey where companies give us information that's not publicly available. So t- take a step back. We approach companies like GE, ExxonMobil, Facebook, and others, where they give us information on compensation for senior executives that's not filed in an SEC filing. So not many companies can walk up to these companies and say, hey, can you give us this information? Like, Why the hell would we give that to you? So we've got a, a unique model where companies are giving us information and then we aggregate that and then we sell service that allows them to access that information on an anonymized basis of other companies across their industry and geographies. So at the end of the day, we've got a, a pretty unique data set that we offer that includes both public and non-public information. And the reality though, taking a step back, compensation data, you know, you're literally talking about decisions that involve millions of dollars at stake for each executive. Right, and also these compensation decisions are incredibly scrutinized by investors. And so there's, as you know, you pick up the newspaper and you'll you'll read about these CEOs that are making these pay packages where there's where the companies aren't performing as well. And needless to say, the largest shareholders like a BlackRock, a Fidelity, and others, they're not happy. And and now they're allowed to vote on these types of things. And this information, this feedback, gets back to board members. And so. At the end of the day, you know, we offer a pretty unique solution for, for decisions that involve literally millions of dollars that are at stake. You mentioned you have these special relationships with these multinational corporations and large companies. I mean, what's, what's the incentive for them or the reason for them for willing to share this information with you, knowing that you ultimately will be sharing this information with a broader community? Yeah. So what, what they're able to get is a much more accurate view on compensation. So because what by participating in what we call a survey here, they're able to see on an anonymized basis, like, okay, here's a much more accurate view of what... So not to get too far into the weeds, but the SEC requires that companies disclose the pay of five highest paid executives. 
always the CEO and CFO. But those next three roles can be the head of HR, the head of sales, the head of marketing, but it's not always the same three across companies. And so to be able to accurately figure out, okay, what should we be paying our chief marketing officer? They want to be able to have access to not only what's publicly available, because what's publicly available will be skewed higher because you're only pulling the chief marketing officers that are of the highest pay. But by using our survey data, we're looking at a much more holistic view of what a chief marketing officer is getting paid because it's, it's pulling in a combination of what's publicly available and what's not publicly available. Hopefully that's making sense. It is. But oftentimes industries are different and sometimes it's comparing apples and oranges. How do you normalize that across industries and how do different industry leaders look at all this data? So one of the big benefits of our platform is that companies can cut they can run different reports, whether it's by geography, by size, by, by industry. Because the thing that I've learned about this business for having done you know, work around compensation for 20 years around executive comp is that there is never a right answer. Everybody has an opinion and everybody feels a right. But as you know, there's such a why and, and it's an incredibly emotional decision, right? Because the executive, he or she may feel she's underpaid, but everybody else feels he or she is overpaid. And then when you look at that as the multiple of you know, the average employee, and then when you look at that, multiple, that pay versus a, an athlete or a musician or an artist, it's such a fascinating area because there, there really is no right answer, as you pointed out, is that when you look at compensation, it's really, there's so many different ways of cutting it. And it's really you know, figuring out, and that's the reason why people... Why there's a whole ecosystem and a whole industry that looks at this because there's so many different ways of and opinions around it. Of all the industries that you observe, which industries are the some of the highest paid executives? Yeah, I mean, I think without question, technology. Without question, uh, entertainment. You know, we did an analysis for the New York Times when Les Moonves when he stepped away from CBS and over like his 10, 12 year career you know, walked away with over a billion dollars. You know, those industries, there's a big competition for talent. I mean, it's so critical having the right people leading these businesses and can make all the difference in the world. I mean, these are businesses that are, you know, the assets are the human capital, right? Mm -hmm. That's why the ones who are producing and are are effective are candidly worth so much. And But you got to also keep in mind, this is information, we're talking about just public company executives. There are so many other industries that, frankly, never have to disclose their compensation. And then take, you know, for example, somebody runs a hedge fund or whatnot. You know, they're making hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. And, you know, the, the, the big question is, okay, who's worth more, right? And that's, re- that's the reason why, you know, you see these numbers where, you know, some of these executives who are running public companies could easily get picked off to, to run a, a PE-backed company and, frankly, could make more with less headaches. We read a lot about gender disparity in terms of pay, as well as disparity uh, among ethnic groups as well. Do you see that condition getting better? Is there more equality you've seen in recent years? Or do you still feel that there's a significant disparity between, let's look at gender first and then among other ethnic groups? Yeah, I mean, the, the reality is we don't have enough data points this, it's, a good, it's a great question, and we are going to look into this more later this year. On the gender side, 
we, we actually, every year we look at, okay, women CEOs versus men CEOs. And we show that women CEOs on average make more than the men. But the reason that it's the case is there just aren't that many women CEOs and the ones who we happen to have, you know, they tend to be pretty, you know, they're running bigger companies. The challenge we have right now is really, you know, having access to, to some of the deeper data to be able to do this. We don't have the ethnic data. We, we don't have that readily available. We are actually in the process of, of capturing some of the ethnic data later this year. We've got some interesting initiatives on that front. But on the gender piece, like I said, we, we've looked at it for CEOs and we've shown that women CEOs make more. But like I said, the data, it's, when you look at the number of data points, it's, it's frankly not fair. So essentially, you're saying, to begin with, the universe of data of, let's just say, male CEOs is so much larger than how many CEOs there, that are women. And that universe is so small. But those women who have attained that leadership are a small group, and they tend to be leaders of very large companies, and they're very public figures, right? Exactly. So they're running much larger businesses and hence they, they just have, you know, like I think it was a Fortune 500, five, roughly 5% are women CEOs. And those five, that, that, those 25 roughly, right, are running, you know, larger businesses on average. How about in terms of representation among ethnic groups? Are you seeing an increase in minority CEOs taking on those like Fortune 500 companies? Or do you see this a shrinkage or, or flattening out in recent years? Yeah, I don't have the hard data to support that, but just anecdotally, definitely seeing the API community having major strides. I mean, I think you think about, look at the major tech companies, right? And the, the Indian community there, you've got, you know, Satya Nadella running Microsoft, you've got Sundar running, running Google or Alphabet. So you, you're definitely seeing that. And then, then you're also seeing, a number of Asian Americans who are, you know, founder-led companies who are running major businesses. So, so, so take Eric Yuan running Zoom, right? And you got Kenji at Fortinet and others. So you, you've definitely seen the API community making major strides in leadership roles. But, you know, frankly, a lot of that's, several of that is through, you know, founders running, running their own companies that have been able to go public. I want to take a slight little shift here and focus on just perhaps extracting from your experience of having been a CEO for a number of years, actually a number of decades. If you were mentoring a mid-career professional and they wanted to reach the corporate suite level someday, what would you advise them to do to invest in their lives or in their training to prepare for that role? Without question, build your network. I think we as uh, Asian Americans, right, our parents always, you know, drilled into us, get good grades, study hard, study hard, right? Well, I think what people underestimate is that so much of the business world is, is networking and, you know, befriending people above you, getting to know people around you. And I think that's without question, one is obviously do a good job of what you're doing. But you know, also get out of your office, go out and meet people, force yourself to go to those you know happy hours and whatnot. So much of you know what I see out in the business world, my you know, going back to my experiences back at Bain and DLJ and, and others, is really you know building you know finding good mentors along the way and staying in touch with them and you know, just building those networks. Networking is an art form. It's a science and an art form, right? It's a numbers game. You just got to go out and meet people. But it's an art form as well. How did you learn how to network and just stay connected with people and build out your community of supporters? I go back to my high school years. 
And I was fortunate enough that one of my friends' dad was an incredibly successful businessman and, and continues to be today, even into his 80s. And one of the things I was fortunate, like you, you don't know what you don't know, right? And I think one of the, the great things about what CTA is doing is having these, these mentor events around the country, right? I think many of us, you know, if you don't get out of your bubble and, and start to, you know, get challenged and recognize what's out there. And one of the things that are, I distinctly remember from my friend's dad, he's like later in life joined YPO. And I, you know, what is YPO? YPO is Young Presidents Organization. So when I had the opportunity where I could qualify to join it, I immediately tried to join it. And thankfully I did. And I'm so glad that I, I went out there and did it. But by spending time with the individual's name is George Keller. And by getting to know Mr. Keller and learning from him, sort of like sort of how did he, you know, how, what was part of his career? I think that is something that if more people could, you know, find people like that and get to know them and learn from them. I just realized that so, so much of, candidly, the success of us for, uh, for Equilar, and, and we're, we're launching a new product right now, and a lot of the calls that we're having are based on people I've gotten to know over the years and have stayed in touch with and, and whatnot. And so, like, frankly, a lot of the folks I worked with back in my DLJ days. So I think, you know, one is getting to know people and then two is really, you know, cultivating and nurturing those relationships and really making efforts to, to stay in touch with people, helping people out when possible. That's just something where, you know, as one thing I've learned is if, if you're always looking to give and to help people later in life, if, you, if the need ever arises, people will be more than happy to help that. So I think, you know, recognizing that the seeds that you're planting today may not, you know, ever bear fruit, but later in life, they could. And so if you're always a kind of a, of, a, of a giving mindset of being able to help people out, they will inevitably, as long as you're genuine about it, I think, you know, you'll be surprised at how helpful people will be down the road. I can't agree with you more. I mean, I, I've had situations where I was maybe a lone intern with another lone intern in my early days. And 20 years hence, we stayed in touch. And that person becomes you know, a CEO of a company or became my principal client on the other side of the table. And it just, you would have never guessed that, right? But these relationships and people you invest in ultimately, you know, who knows, you know, becomes, you know, wonderful colleagues uh, in the professional world and also help. We kind of, we lift both of us up, right? It's a win-win through those relationships. Yeah. Exactly. That you look back at the people you you know graduated from college with, your first jobs, and where are they all today? Like I said, with DLJ getting sold to Credit Suisse, it was a, a, an amazing diaspora of individuals, and just you know keeping in touch with them, you know meeting, getting together at least once a year for dinner, and uh, all these things, which has been been a lot of fun. Yeah, just in your comments, I just wanted to highlight two important things. One is obviously we had just talked about investing in friends and and people and staying in touch and following up. But also Mr. Geller, who played an important role model in your life and finding great role models, successful people like that, and then emulating or just follow, watching their lives and see how they were brought into success and just learning from them through their lives. I feel like that's, that was an important part of your mentorship as you were growing your own career. 
Yeah, exactly. Because like, what I love to say is you don't know what you don't know. You know, I was very fortunate enough that Mr. Geller kind of took me under his wing, gave me some pretty good advice. I mean, here's another lesson. So they, they had a vacation home up in the Berkshire Mountains uh, up in upstate New York. And I remember we went for a run together and we were going back to like the general store there in their neighborhood. And he was returning like a five, like a, a Snapple bottle, like for like the five cent deposit. And this guy, you know, clearly didn't need the, need the nickel, but he just said like, you know, hey, you just, ne- you know, every, every penny counts. It's like, you know, little things like that, that just kind of like, wow, pretty humble guy. And but that little, you know, life lessons along the way. Hmm. I wanted to also connect this to your own success over the last 20 years. Obviously, Eclor has grown tremendously since those early days in 2000. What do you think was the, aside from the important lessons of life and applying them in your career as a CEO, what do you think was the secret of your success? Hard work is one, luck is two. But I think also listening to our customers, listening and understanding the market needs and just you know, really making sure that the products and the service and the support are optimized to meet their needs. You know, we've had competition as many businesses do over the years and just making sure, you know, not never to get complacent, right? Never to assume things will be fine. So it's, you know, just having the, the focus on, uh, on building that out. And I'm super excited about our new product. And, you know, we're launching that in this, in this market, but still feel that we're, we're hitting on a major pain point for many companies out there. And so we're, uh, you know, keeping our heads down and, and just executing this market. As a CEO, any great books you've read recently that really helps you in your leadership? Recently, well, I've been listening, you know, I've become a huge fan of Audible. I cannot say enough, you know, if you're not using Audible, you should try it out. I just got listening listening to Samsung Rising, listen to like Steve Schwartzman's book and Mark Benioff's book. So all of those I've been able to listen to recently. But I think, oh, and uh, what was it? Renaissance Technologies, James Simons, that was a really good book, The Man Who Solved the Markets. But I think from an entrepreneurial standpoint, I would say the number one book I would recommend, though it wasn't necessarily recent, would be uh, Ben Horowitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And he, you know, started loud cloud opsware going through the, the dot-com burst you know as many of you know he's the co-founder of andreessen horowitz but without question if you talk to see you know entrepreneurs and ceos who've read books and if they've read that book that typically gets to the top of the list i actually have the book on my bookshelf i haven't had a chance to crack it open if we can pull out one important insight from that what would that be from that book well, I think it's along the lines of what just t- touching on a second ago about like there are really hard decisions as a CEO, especially in this downturn that he had to go through where he had to, you know, sell off part of the business, lay off people and how it's lonely at the top and how you're going to get criticized for it. You're going to get attacked and all these types of things. And that if you're not, if you don't have the intestinal fortitude to handle that, then you shouldn't be a CEO. And, you know, all businesses, most businesses will go through a downturn at some point in their cycle. And, you know, we're going through our third right now, right? We survived 2000, 2001. We survived 08, 09. We're going through it again now here, obviously, with COVID-19. I think that's a book, if anyone who's thinking about becoming an entrepreneur or becoming a CEO, I would strongly recommend you read it because 
And, and many people, as we all know, were very optimistic about it, right? Like, oh, yeah, it's not going to be a big deal. I can handle it. I can handle it. And, and, and you know, probably can. But if, if you really go into that book with your eyes wide open and really listen and really understand, okay, wow, you know, put myself in, the, in that shoes. Can I handle that? Can I handle that? And that's something that, like I said, like I said, he does a, a phenomenal job. Everyone who's read it, who's been through a downturn, it resonates so well with them. I mean, it hits all the chords, all the nerves, and it goes back. I would also say the other great book that one of his other partners wrote is Scott Cooper's book, who I think Scott's now the managing partner in Jason Horowitz. But he wrote a book, Secrets of Sand Hill Road. So those are two great books. But I, I would read Ben's first. Nothing, no disrespect to Scott. Ben's, is, it's a great book. I'll certainly pick that up very soon. <laughs> ben Horowitz's book. You got uh, plenty of time right now, right? <laughs> and I'll listen to it on Audible too. So, yeah. <laughs> One of the priorities that your company is pursuing is to help corporations diversify their boards. Why is board diversity important in your opinion? Diversity is not important just for the sake of diversity, but by having diverse opinions and experiences in a boardroom, it ultimately leads to better decision-making, which ultimately will lead to better returns for an organization. And when you have a homogeneous set of board directors that have had all you know, similar experiences, you know, candidly, you're going to have blind spots, right? And by, by having you know, women, people of color, and other diverse aspects bringing into the boardroom, they're going to be able to share experiences and help in the decision-making process that will ultimately lead to better outcomes for that business. And that's why there's a big push by the investor community to have greater diversity in, in boardrooms. That's the, the number one, you know, probably the, the, you know, just having different opinions to be able to share around that. But there's also an important other part of it. And, and not as much of an issue now than it was, let's say, a month ago when the, when the unemployment rate was at 3.5%. But in what was formerly known as the war for talent, having visible diversity, having more women, more people of color was helping companies to attract talent. And so those businesses that, you know, if you're a woman and you look at the leadership team and you don't see any women on the leadership team or on the board of directors, you're probably going to feel it's probably not as friendly for, for women to go there. Uh, like I said, this was an issue about a, about a month ago. We'll see when the unemployment numbers fully come out in the next couple of weeks. It's probably not going to be as big of an issue as earlier, but having that diversity is important for businesses longer term. Hmm. What industry does it well in terms of diversity in their boardroom? I would say rather than industries, I'm going to focus on states. And so California, because they're... It's hard, you know, the, the fashion industry, yes, because you have more women in that and, and whatnot in retail would probably be a bit higher than let's say others. So it's hard enough to say that one industry does it necessarily well. But I do want to say in California, as many of you know, they passed the law out here. And we just published something recently on that where before the law of the 50 states, California was, I want to say about 30th or 35th. Now a year and a half later, after the law has been passed it, to get more women on boards, we're up to about 15th. And but we're not in full compliance yet. And then once the every company is in full compliance, California would actually jump to number two. So California, while there's been a lot of controversy of having quotas here in California, it's definitely made an impact in moving the needle. The only reason we're not number one is because we'd be behind in Mexico, which has only one public company. 
California has done a phenomenal job of helping to move the needle there. If a company recognizes the importance of diversity and perhaps their their board has been somewhat monolithic in terms of the folks that are sitting on the board. I mean, what do you advise these companies to do? I know you have, you know, you've said that board diversity is more than just checking a box. In fact, it's a paradigm shift within the company and the culture as a result of moving toward greater diversity. What do you advise companies if they come to you and say, you know, David, we we want to be a more diverse and representative company. What do you recommend to do? Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, I mean, board recruiting and, you know, board succession planning, it's it's an interesting process. And at the end of the day, you know, I think companies definitely want to have more diverse representation in, in, in the boardroom, but they also want to be careful on who they add to their board. And so as part of that process, they need to go beyond their networks to find the diverse candidates, but they also want to make sure that they, it's an interesting balance there. Okay, I I want to go find some people, but I also want to be careful who I bring into the boardroom. And so this is where, you know, if you don't mind, I'm going to digress and do uh, talk about what what our product does, but Mm -hmm. our product actually tracks the networks of people so that you're able to be able to back channel somebody and say, okay, before I talk to, let's say, Susan or Mary, whoever, let me see within my network who might know them because it's an awkward process to start talking to somebody about you know, coming on the board and then find out at the 11th hour, like, ooh, man, you, know, you don't want to bring that person on. So I think that's something where I think companies can do a better job of you know, being able to rely, you know, tap their networks to see who within their community could potentially know somebody who would be a good fit and to be able to take advantage of that as part of the process. So if Asian Americans and Pacific Islander professionals would like to get into a board, a board of a Fortune 500 company, I mean, what would you advise them to do to prepare for this? Obviously, it's not something that you can do over a month or so. It's something that would take quite a bit of time to prepare to be recruited into such a role, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of people make is that they wait too late. They, they approach retirement and they say, I'm going to look for a board seat now. And at that point, it's honestly, especially in this environment, people need to be building their board networks well before they are ready to join a board. And that's looking at people in their network that know who are sitting on board today and you know, spending time with them, whether it's meeting them for breakfast or going to events with them or whatnot. So it's without question, I, I can't stress enough if you're you know, you got to start building your board network and you got to start building it now well in advance of the time you think you're going to join a board. I mean, you have search firms like Russell Reynolds and Spencer Stewart and others that are helping to place people on boards, but that's such a small percentage of how, of the number of board seats that, you know, are filled through search firms. And it's, you know, if you're an executive at a public company, great way to start building your board network is spending time with your own board and to be able to go into your own board and, you know, be part of that discussion, be, be knowledgeable about governance matters. You know, there's a whole host of issues around corporate governance, around public company issues. And so the more you can get smarter on that, plus start building people who can potentially help on your board journey, that's an important part of the process. You spoke of an informal process, which is the building the network and friendships and just, I guess, telling your colleagues who are on boards that you are interested in eventually becoming a board member. Is there a formal training aspect of this too that one has to consider? 
Yeah, I mean, well, you wanna, there, there, there's tons of resources out there around, for lack of a, I would, you know, call it, let's say, formal training. So there's, you know, in Washington, D.C., there's NACD, the National Association of Corporate Directors, and they have uh, chapters all around the country, and they're putting, there's programming throughout the year. Well, there used to be before shelter in place. And then there are other organizations, including ours. I mean, we do our own board leadership forum and our comp committee forum and stuff like that. And there, there are in-person events. There are universities like Stanford has, a, I, I think, the best program, Stanford Directors College. They'll get 300 people at Stanford Law School around for three days around board education. You know, the, the classroom training and the programming, you know, it, it, it helps. but really. You know, the more to the extent that you have an opportunity to learn from your own board or to potentially join another board. I mean, another way to approach this is to get involved with a nonprofit board, and especially nonprofit boards that include board members who have public company experience. And you know, in our in my situation on the Asian Pacific Fund board, you know, some of the board members there have, have sat on or and currently sit on other public boards, and I'm not personally joining a public board for now because of, uh, of conflicts of interest as we work with so many of these other companies. But, you know, as you, if you can find a nonprofit board that includes board members who sit on public boards, it's a nice way to start learning from them so that when the opportunity arises, you're ready for that. For those who are not as familiar about corporate boards, I mean, could you tell us why people would want to be on a board? Why business leaders are looking for roles in various companies? Is, is it the prestige factor or is there something else involved here? There's definitely a, a prestige factor to it without question. There's also a compensation aspect to it. I mean, if you're on a Fortune 500 board, just one board alone for quote unquote a part-time job, it stays about $300,000 a year. So it's not insignificant. The other reason why people want to join boards, you know, especially for somebody who's, you know, ready to retire from their from a full-time career, it's also a nice way to, you know, stay mentally engaged. It's a nice way to feel like you're also potentially giving back and to be able to mentor and help other businesses and whatnot. But the reality is I have to I hate to say this, but I think there are a lot of people who look to join boards honestly for the wrong reasons. And I think, you know, especially in the public world, being a public company board member isn't, yes, there is the, the prestige doesn't go away. The compensation continues to go up a little bit each year. However, it's become a lot of work. And it's not like what it was 10, 15, 20 years ago, where you go out, hang out at a country club and then, you know, you know rubber stamp a couple things and move on. I mean, on today's day and age, you know, when you have activist investors, you've got the institutional investor community, they're, they're taking a much more proactive role in voicing their displeasure pleasure with board members and whatnot. So I think people need to understand and not underestimate the amount of work that's going to be involved and how much of, you know, public boards may not be the right fit. So maybe a private board, you know, a nonprofit board. So you need to understand there are trade-offs and I just want people to, to understand that. Most people who join boards are not, you know, near retirement. You see folks who are on boards in the middle of the career. In fact, you find often sometimes CEOs of other organizations part of these boards? Why would they join boards? Yeah. I mean, many companies have a different philosophies on, on that. Certain companies, as they think about CEO succession, let's say you got the CEO and you got two or three executives that are reporting into the CEO. Certain companies want those individuals to go sit on another board because then they'll see 
how other boards operate so that when they're ready to potentially become the CEO of their own company, they've had that experience of understanding that dynamic between the CEO and the board member. So it's actually good training in that regard. However, you don't want to have these executives sitting on, let's say, five boards because they do have a day job. So it is from a professional development standpoint for, that, for those C-suite executives, it is actually a good experience for them. But there are other companies who say you can't sit on other boards. Like, you know, you got a day job and you need to focus. So, yeah, it really depends on, you know, from a management succession planning perspective, you know, having that experience of seeing how another board operates and to learn from them, it, that, that's valuable. And, and, you know, you can see how things are working and be able to bring back best practices to your own company. Well, David, you've been very generous with your time, and I really appreciate the insights you've been sharing with us. Uh, I wanted to bring our interview to a close here by asking a final question. I want to take a full circle back to your younger life. If you met your 19 or 20-year-old self, what would you advise the young David? I would say, and I got an 18-year-old son, so maybe if he's going to listen to this, I see in him what, you know, what I was uh, going through at his age. You know, not to be a stubborn, right? I mean, to listen more. As an entrepreneur, there's a, there's a fine line between hard-headedness, driven, stubbornness, and the flexibility, the coachability, and listening. And I think at that age, I probably should have listened more and not been as, as stubborn as, as, as I was back then. So be a good listener. That's the ultimate bottom line. <laughs> yeah, it, but it's, you know, that, that's, it's a, yes, be a good listener, but you also got to be a very, you know, everyone's going everyone's gonna to share advice, right? Mm. And it's being able to, how, how do you synthesize all of that to really understand, okay, all the different opinions I've heard, all things I've been able to, you know, absorb, you know, what, what's the right decision there? And so that decision-making process is not an easy one. It's just really understanding that yes, I want, you should be listening more, but then also be able to figure out, okay, how do you, how do you synthesize the process all that? Great words of wisdom. Thank you very much, David. Thanks for your time. We really appreciate it and, and just sharing your life with our audience at the Korean American Perspectives. And I wish you great success and luck, especially during this time of economic turbulence. I'm sure your company will do very well. So thank you very much, David. Great. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. I hope you enjoy this honest and insightful interview with David Chun today. David's insight into corporate board governance and strategies to become an effective leader prove especially appropriate in times like now when the COVID-19 pandemic is destabilizing so many companies. Well, thank you again for listening to this episode of the Korean American Perspectives podcast. As always, we ask that you please subscribe to our podcast and visit our website at councilka.org. Thank you again and hope you tune in next time for the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Thank you for tuning into the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Head over to councilka.org for the show notes of this episode and see exciting upcoming programs at CKA. That's councilka.org.